Test, test one. Hey, there we go. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. I heard a recent story that I wanted to share with you. It's about a pastor, a famous pastor in South America named Juan Ortiz. He was a pastor of a very successful large church in South America, and he was preparing for his sermon, getting ready throughout the week, trying to get his thoughts organized and figure out what the takeaways were that he wanted the people to, to remember and organizing everything. And he got to church on Sunday morning and everyone was singing and worshiping and celebrating. It got to the point in the service where he was supposed to preach. And so he got up, he was about halfway to the podium and he heard the Lord ask him, how many times have you preached on this scripture? And he'd been a pastor at this church for a long time. And he thought about it, and it was one of his favorite scriptures to preach on. He thought about it, and he said, I don't know, Lord, maybe a dozen. And the Lord said, did any of those make any difference? And he kind of stood there for a second, kind of in shock a little bit, and he was like, well, I thought so, but since you're asking me that question, I'm kind of starting to wonder. Maybe, maybe they didn't. So he kind of made his way up to the podium, and he got there, and he stood there, and he looked down at his notes, and he looked out at the people, people who he had led to the Lord, people who he had married, people who he had counseled people who he has seen struggle to live out the scripture he was about to speak on. And he looked down at his sermon and he thought to himself, maybe I've got the wrong sermon here. He just kind of stood there quietly for a little bit. And then he just said, love one another. And he gathered his notes and he went and he sat down. Everyone was a little uncomfortable. It's like, this is not what Pastor Juan usually does. Like, is Pastor Juan okay? Like, what's going on? Everybody's kind of wondering. They're kind of looking at him out of the corner of his eyes. He just sat there quietly. Some minutes went by. It was uncomfortable for everybody. Pastor Juan got back up, and he stood there, and he looked at him again, and he said, love one another. And he gathered his notes, and he went, and he sat down. Now people are like increasingly uncomfortable. You can kind of hear people talking amongst, amongst themselves a little bit, like trying to figure out what's going on with Pastor Juan. Like, did he go crazy this week? Like, maybe he doesn't want to preach anymore. Like, what's, what's the deal? Five minutes go by this time. Pastor Juan gets up again. He, he opens his notes like he's going to preach from him, and he says, love one another. And he gathers his notes, and he goes, and he, he sits down. Now people are like, like 15 minutes has gone by. Like people are very not comfortable with what's going on. This isn't what normally happens. They're kind of trying to figure out what the deal is. And then one guy raises his hands and he says, you know, I think I get what Pastor Juan is trying to say. Like how can I love you when I don't even hardly know you? Like a lot of you here, I don't even know your names. I have no idea what's going on in your life. I just, we go to church together, but I don't really know you. So he turned around and he started to introduce himself to a family that was sitting behind him and started to ask them about their life and ask them what was going on in their life to get to know them. And some people started to follow suit. Some other people started to introduce themselves to people around them and get to know people a little bit. And some people thought, okay, maybe this is what Pastor Juan wants. So they start to introduce themselves to each other and get to know each other. Then one guy raises his hand and he says, I think I know what Pastor Juan is getting at. It's hard for me to, to love one another when I've held a grudge against my friend Carlos for 10 years. Some of you know about the fight our family got in 10 years ago. It's been 10 years I've held a grudge against Carlos. And he went over and he knelt at Carlos's feet and he repented and asked for his forgiveness. 
And with that, the floodgates opened in the church. People started to go around and confess their sins to each other. People started to repent for what they had done. People started introducing themselves to each other. People started getting in groups. They started finding out what was going on in people's lives. They started to actually act like the body of Christ, not just a group of people together. They got together to sing some songs. One of the groups that got together, they found out there was a family in their little circle there that uh, was in town because their daughter needed a surgery that she couldn't get in their town, but she was there in their town just for that surgery for the weekend. The family had enough money to take the train to the town to get the surgery, but they didn't have enough money to take the train home. So they started gathering up some money with some friends, and they were able to come up with enough money for that family to travel home. There was a, a, a young man in one of the circles um, he had just gotten engaged, and he was supposed to get married very, very soon, and he was super excited to marry this girl that he had fallen in love with. But when his, um, when his job, when his employer closed the doors on Friday night, they found out that the employer wasn't going to open the doors again, and he didn't have a job. So he was in a circle with these guys getting to know him, and he said, I really need a job. And one of the guys said, I have a friend who owns his own business, and he's here this morning. He's over there. And he's desperate for employees. Maybe we can go introduce you to him. So they went over and they introduced him to him and he gave him a job right on the spot. There was another little circle where these group, groups of people were getting to know each other. And there was a woman there whose husband had passed away and she just had two young twins. And she was, she was a mom by herself. And she said to the group of people when she was getting to know them, they asked what was going on in her life and she told them what happened. And she said, I'm not going to be able to afford to keep um, living in the apartment that we're in. I don't even know how I'm going to try and make money and, and raise these two sons that I have now. Like, I don't even know. And one guy said, I have an idea. Give me a second. So he went over and talked to a friend of his. And this friend had built an in-law suite for his in-laws, but it was going to be like three years before his in-laws were going to move in there. So he went over to his friend and he said, would you be interested in like letting this girl with these twins, her husband died, would you let her live in your house on the backside in your in-law suite. And he talked to his wife and they said, yeah, we think that'd be great. So they invited this girl to come and live in their house. And his wife actually wasn't able to have kids. And it was such a joy for her to be able to help this young mom raise her kids. Pastor Juan sat back and watched this stuff unfold over an afternoon together. People ended up leaving to go get lunch together. He sat back and he realized he had probably preached the most powerful message he had ever preached in that church by just simply sharing three words. I think that if we actually lived out loving one another, we could turn the world upside down like the disciples did. If we actually acted like the church, if we actually acted like the body of Christ, we could turn the world upside down like this church began to turn their city upside down for Jesus. I'm absolutely convinced positively convinced that we're better together. And not just because it's been my experience, although it has been my personal experience too. It's because that's what God calls us to. That's the life that God calls us to, is to live together. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the Message Bible, says it this way. He says, There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and an embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. I am not myself by myself. And you are not yourself by yourself. I want to pick up where we left off last Sunday. If you'll remember last Sunday, I talked about that we are better together. 
that life is better in circles than it is in rows. There's a time and a place for rows, but the early disciples lived in circles together, and in those circles, that became a platform of strength where they could live out the mission that God had called them to. When we closed last Sunday, I read John 13, verses 34 and 35. It says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I looked at that phrase, one another, and uh, I realized I had seen it a bunch of other places, so I looked it up, and it turns out that phrase, one another, is 59 times it appears in the New Testament. 51 times that phrase, one another, is used. And I want to read to you each of those, each of those one another's, and you can read along with me on the screen. Serve one another. Strengthen one another, accept one another, help one another, encourage one another, care for one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, commit to one another, build trust with one another, be devoted to one another, be patient with one another, be interested in one another, be accountable to one another, confess to one another, live in harmony with one another. Don't be conceited with one another. Don't pass judgment with one another. Don't slander one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. Admonish one another. Spur on one another. Meet with one another. Agree with one another. Be concerned with one another. Be humble with one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Be compassionate with one another. Don't be consumed with one another. Don't be angry with one another. Don't lie to one another. Live in peace with one another. Do not grumble with one another. Give preference to one another. Be at peace with one another. Sing to one another. Comfort one another. Be kind to one another. Carry one another's burdens and love one another. Just imagine for a second what a group of people that actually lived out those one another's might look like. What a group of people who lived out each of those 59 one another's. A group of people that actually loved one another. I think it would be trending on Twitter for weeks on end. I think it would overpower every negative news story that we have out there. I believe a group of people that live like this would win Wyoming County for Jesus. We would turn our state around. We would be the church that God actually called us to be. How many of you guys have a, uh, a phone like this. Anybody? Anybody have a phone? Oh, you do. Oh, that's convenient. We can talk about it. Um, how many of you love your phones? Any people willing to be honest? We got some honest people. Yeah, you love your phone. How many of you hate your phone? How many of you kind of love and kind of hate your phone? Um, in a recent study, 47% of Americans say that they are addicted to their phones, and the other 53% lied. 53% say they've never gone 24 hours without their phone. 71% say they look at their phone in the first 10 minutes of the day. The average American spends three hours a day on their phone, which adds up to 44 days per year that we spend on our phone. Kind of crazy. So it's kind of weird that we even 
call this thing a phone. Like, that's kind of strange to me. Like, I understand why we do, because it used to be a phone, but it's not really a phone anymore. In fact, the phone app is like the least used application on my phone. And if you try and make me use it, I am not going to be happy about it. Like, we have agreed socially. We text. We don't, don't talk on the phone. I don't want to talk. Maybe some of you feel a little bit like this lady here when someone uses the phone app on you. Or maybe you feel like this guy here when somebody uses the phone app on you. Maybe you just hide, like, I'm not here, text me instead. Or maybe you feel like this person here. It's the worst, right? Ask a question and then they call you, like, come on, don't do that. So calling, calling a phone a phone is kind of like calling a Lamborghini a cup holder. Like, Technically, it's true, but there's so much more that phones do and are right now. And because of phones, we are more accessible than we have ever been in history. Like anyone can get a hold of us at any time. Like someone was just calling me when I had my phone out just now. One of you little punks was calling me. <laughs> we're more accessible than we have ever been before, but we're not so much available for relationships. I read those 59 one another statements, and it's, it's hard for me to believe that those statements were intended for us to be lived out on screens. I actually don't believe that those statements were designed for us to be lived out on screens. I believe that those statements were designed for us to be lived out in circles, in relationship with each other. Ephesians 4.16 says, From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The first thing that I want you to understand this morning is you were not made to be alone. You were not made to be alone. We were designed by God to be together with each person doing their part, each person doing the work, and relationships are work sometimes. Let me tell you, like, relationships are not always easy. Sometimes it takes work, but that work is worth it. We're more accessible than we've ever been in history, maybe, but we're also maybe less available for relationship than we ever have been in history. And I believe the result of that is loneliness. One of the results of that is loneliness. The National Library of Medicine released some information about loneliness recently. They said 52% of Americans report feeling lonely. 47 report that their relationships with others are not meaningful. 58 report that sometimes or always they feel that no one knows them well. 73% of millennials report feeling lonely. And 25% report they have no one they consider a close confidant. Loneliness increases the chance of death, they found, by 26%. And it is worse for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness is a big deal, and it's a big deal that a lot of us are struggling with. Maybe some of those stats surprised you, or maybe some of them felt super, super real for you and hit close to home. I know for me, there's been times where I've struggled with loneliness. And it sounds strange to say that I struggle with loneliness because there's like 
virtually zero seconds in my life that I'm alone, which is strange. Like, so how could I possibly be lonely? But there have definitely been times where I've been lonely, and there's nothing worse, I think, than being lonely in a crowd of people. Nothing worse than feeling lonely when you're surrounded by people. Nothing worse than feeling lonely when you're laying in bed next to someone. That's a very real feeling that a lot of us have. And sometimes I've had those feelings because I haven't showed up as my true self. Sometimes part of the reason I feel lonely is because I'm fake, because I'm not being who I really am. I'm not being vulnerable or open with the people around me. I say I'm fine when I'm not fine. I say everything's good when everything's not good. And in the end, the result of that fakeness that we tend to have with each other is loneliness. There was a researcher named Johan Hari, and he, uh, he did a famous TED Talk that maybe some of you have seen. He talked about this research that was done in the 80s. I don't know if they could do it anymore because of animal cruelty, but they did it in the 80s. And uh, they took rats, and they would take a rat, and they would put it in a cage, and there would be two sources of water in the cage. There would be drug-laced water, and then there would be pure water. And every single time, without fail, 100% of the time, the rat that was alone in the cage went and drank the drug-laced water and got addicted to drugs. Then they would take a group of rats, maybe three or four rats, put them in a cage with pure water and drug-laced water, some food, some toys, and a group of other rats. And every single time, without fail, not one of the rats went to the drug-laced water. Every single time, they drank the pure water. And then they went and they wrestled with each other and chased each other and ate some food and played together. So then they took, took it a step further. And they took the drug-addicted rat and they put it in the cage with the rats that were in a group playing together and weren't drug-addicted. And the drug-addicted rat never one time went back to the drug-laced water. Not even once. Every single time, it entered into the community, it played with people, it ate food, it played with toys, and it went and it drank the pure water. What Johann said from this research was, when meaningful connection is missing from our lives, we often run to some addiction to fill the void. And then he concluded with this piece of information. He said, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it is in fact connection. You were not made to be alone. You were made for community. You were made for connection. You were made to be with people, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. God still made you to be together. He made us to be together in relationship. I want to look this morning at the beginning of Genesis, and we're going to spend most of our time there this morning. I want to start off in chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 18. It says, The Lord God said it's not good For the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So I feel like what's happening here is right from the beginning, right from the beginning of this, this long book that God gives to us, right from this begin, the beginning of this book that has everything that we need for life in it, right in the beginning, right out in front, God is saying, you were not made to be alone. Up until this point in the scripture, God is making things every day and he makes 
trees and he makes flowers and every day at the end of the day it's like high five between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, this was good. Like we did a good job with this. He separates the water from the, from the ground and he makes mountains and he makes all this stuff and he says, this is good. But then he makes man and it's the first time that he says, this is not good that man should be alone. You were not made to be alone. The second thing I want you to see is that you were made for connection. Not only were you made not to be alone, but you specifically, intentionally, were made for connection. Genesis 2, 21, let's keep reading. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took, out, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. So I believe this is something that's true for marriage, but I think it's also true for just relationship in general, is we were not made to be alone. We were designed for connection. We were designed for relationship. Let's read verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So here we see that there's vulnerability without shame. And I think when we boil down what each one of us really want at our core in relationship is we want that. We want to be able to be vulnerable with each other without feeling shame. Maybe if you haven't even thought of it before, I think a way that maybe some people think about it is they want a safe place. They want a place that feels safe. And when they say safe, what they really mean is they want a place that they can be vulnerable, they can be themselves, who they are, and not feel judged for it, not feel shame for who they are. A couple of years ago, I heard this one of two phrases start being used often. One of them is a question, one of them is a phrase. And when I started hearing it, I thought it was like the strangest thing. Like, why are people saying that. And it took me a while to figure it out. The phrase is, can I be honest with you? Or that's the question, can I be honest with you? Or the phrase is, I'm just going to be honest, right? You guys have heard people say that, can I be honest with you? Or I'm just going to be honest. When people did that, that seemed like the strangest thing ever to me. In fact, I would say to people sometimes, oh, I didn't know we weren't being honest for the last 40 minutes. Like, I thought we, I thought we were just doing honest. Like, when we got together to talk, I didn't know we were going to lie to each other and then decide to tell each other the truth. Like, I thought we were just going to tell the truth the whole time, but if you want to do something different, just let me know. We can do that, you know? But then I got to thinking about it, and really what I realized people were doing when they were saying that is they weren't really asking for, they weren't lying for the last 40 minutes and asking for permission to tell the truth. What they were actually saying is, can I be vulnerable with you? Or they'd make a statement, which is, I'm going to be vulnerable for a minute. So then I thought about that, and I think that's really strange. Like, why would you tell, ask someone if you can be vulnerable, or why would you announce, hey, I'm going to be vulnerable? Like, it's just a really strange thing. So I was thinking about why do people do that? Like, why is that such a common thing? The reason is because it is scary as heck to be vulnerable. So we're letting people know, like, hey, I'm venturing out in this scary territory, and I'm trusting you enough to be vulnerable with you right now, to be open with you, to share openly, because that's what we really want, is we want to be able to be vulnerable. We want to be able to be open with each other and not feel shame. That's why the scripture says that Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. You were not made to be alone. 
You were made for connection. And then my question that I kind of want to end with about that is, do you trust God's plan? Do you actually trust God's design, that he made you not to be alone, and he made you for connection? Do you trust God with that plan? I want you to think about it, and I want you to think about it while we're looking at the next section of Scripture here. This is Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, first of all, being tempted to eat an apple seems kind of strange to me. I don't know about you, but I've never been tempted by an apple. I mean, put a little caramel on it. Now we might have a little temptation going on, a little peanut butter. But just an apple, like in and of itself, I've never been tempted by it. I don't know if you have. Fruit is not particularly tempting. Um, so like, what's going on here? Was Eve really tempted by an apple? No, I don't believe that Eve was really tempted by a piece of fruit. What she's being tempted by is to not trust God's goodness. This is the original temptation, is to not trust God's goodness. And I think it's one of the biggest temptations for everybody. It wasn't something that was exclusive to Eve. I think it's something that all of us struggle with, is do we actually trust God's goodness? Or do we think we know better? Do we think we know what's, what's good for us better than God does? Do we trust his design or do we think we know better? Let's keep reading in verse uh, 2. It says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the tree in the garden, but God said you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that, what, that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's a couple things that, that stand out to me in that portion of Scripture that I just read. The first one is Eve misquotes God. So I went back and I looked in the earlier chapter at what God said to Eve. And what Eve said is close to what God said but she misquotes him. And I don't think that that is an accident or just some happenstance. I believe that Eve went through a progression of her heart that was connected with God, her heart drifting from God's heart. And as she drifted from God's heart, she began to forget exactly what he said to the point that his words began to be twisted, and she didn't even know what he said, and she didn't know what was right and what was wrong anymore, so she misquotes him when she's in that place of temptation. And I think that's something that can happen for us often. It's as, we, as our heart drifts from God, we begin to forget what he said. What happens in your life when you get yourself in a situation that's a mess? When you get yourself in a hard situation, maybe something really bad happens in your life. One of the first things that we run to is we begin to question God's goodness. Like, would God really allow this? Why would God let this happen in my life? Is this really the best way? Like, come on, God, like, there's got to be a better way that you could have taught me some lesson you want me to. Or like, why did you give up on me? Or did you bring me this far just to hang me out to dry? We start questioning God's goodness. And then what God has said, the truth of God's word, what he has spoken, we start to forget that. Like, is that really a sin? 
Does that really matter? Is that really a big deal? Does God really say that in his word? Maybe he meant this when he said that. And we start drifting like Eve did and then questioning God's goodness. The second thing that stands out to me in that portion of scripture is that phrase, you will be like God, knowing good. Knowing good. In other words, you will will not need to trust God's goodness. You can know what's good on your own. You can figure out what's good for you on your own. You won't need to trust God's goodness. That's the temptation that Eve fell to. God calls us to one another. He calls us to life together. He calls us to unity. He didn't make us to live alone. That's crystal clear in the beginning of Genesis. Do you trust his design? Do you trust his plan? Or do you think you don't need people? Do you think you don't need to be around people? Do you think you don't really need community? Do you think you're better on your own? If you think those things, then you think you know better than God. You're not trusting his goodness. Well, I'm just an introvert. That would be the thing that I would say if I was going to argue with God. I'm more introverted. Like, people aren't safe. People are crazy. They're weirdos. Like, God, like, I, I don't know. Like, I'd rather just be at home. Like, I can't, I'm not going to get in trouble on my own. That's not really true. I am going to get in trouble on my own, and so are the rest of you introverts. You can get in a dark place real quick. You can get yourself in a world of trouble on your own. We need each other. Let's keep reading and see what happens when Eve sins, when she doesn't trust God's goodness. This is Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves a covering. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So Adam and Eve sin. They don't trust God. They don't trust his goodness. They eat the fruit, and now they're hiding, covering, and feeling shame. Hiding, covering, and feeling shame. As someone who God has called to watch over your souls, I got to warn you that the independent spirit that some of you have, the independent spirit, the cowboy mentality that I don't need anyone, it's going to end in hiding, covering, and shame in your life. I've seen it happen time and time again where people don't think they need other people. They think they're fine on their own. And oftentimes they end up hiding, covering, and in shame. If you're someone this morning who struggles with shame, if you just hear that word and it's like something inside of you is like, ding, 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 that's me. If you're someone who struggles with shame, I want you to take a close look at your life. Do you distance yourself from people? Do you hide from people? Like if we find ourselves in that place of feeling shame, there's a real good chance that we've, it's because we've been hiding and covering for a long time. A journey away from community is always a journey towards shame. A journey away from community is a journey towards shame. So when you don't value community, When you operate in an independent spirit, I want you to think about this. I want you to know that's where you're going. 
you're headed towards shame. And shame is too much for us to, bur- to, to, to carry. It's too, much, too big of a burden for us. That's why Adam and Eve are hiding from God. Adam and Eve go from walking with God to hiding from God. And the truth is, I think a lot of us have been hiding from God ever since. Hiding from each other and hiding from God. Some people hide behind achievement. They hide behind accolades or awards. Like they see themselves and they present themselves as being ultra-capable people. And in in being an ultra-capable person, you're like, by default, a little bit better than everyone else who's not capable. So that creates a gap between you and them. It creates safe, safety, creates a space where they can't get to you. And you use that type of achievement to keep people at bay, to keep people at distance. Some people hide behind humor. I think probably most of you could see this, where someone like, when stuff gets a little too vulnerable, stuff gets a little too close, stuff gets a little too like uncomfortable, there's always going to be that person who's going to tell a joke. Like They can't handle it. They can't take it. So they use humor to deflect, to kind of keep people a little bit further away. Like, I'm not going to let you get quite that close to me because it's uncomfortable. So I'm going to tell a joke to try and keep you at distance. Maybe it's actually distance itself that you use. Some people just don't show up. Like, they don't want to be close to people. They don't want people to be close to them. They want to keep that space. So they just are, like, kind of absent sometimes, and they don't show up. Or maybe they show up, but they're distant emotionally. So they're physically there, but emotionally they're far, they're far, far away, and they use that as a thing to try and a self-protection mechanism to keep people at bay. Some people use hurry. Some people, like, they, they present their lives as if they have a super, super busy schedule. Maybe they do have a busy schedule. They fill up their life. They make it so busy. They're so hurried and rushed that they don't really have time for relationship. Like, you would look at that person, you'd be like, I don't even want to ask them anything because I know they're so busy and so hurried and they've got so much on their plate that very clearly, like, they don't have time for this interaction that I was looking for. And they use that hurry as a self-protection. Some people use religion. Some people roll into church and they want to sit down and like dot their I's and cross their T's and go through the process, but as soon as the pastor closes in prayer, it's like boom, they're in their car before, you're like, whoa, that was crazy. There's the blur, them running to their car. They wanted to go through the religious duty. They wanted to be here, but they didn't want, it. They didn't want to leave room for connection or relationship. The only way to not just be accessible but available. Remember I talked about cell phones. We're more accessible than we've ever been before, but maybe less available than we've ever been before. The only way to actually show up and be available is to be vulnerable. Are you willing to be vulnerable? Are you willing to show up as your true self with your, with your faults and your flaws and trust that the people around you aren't going to heap shame on you but they're actually going to accept you. Because that's what each one of, one of us really wants is to be. That's where, that was imperfection in the garden. Adam and Eve were naked together and felt no shame. But when sin entered the picture, they immediately felt shame and tried to cover themselves up. Brene Brown is famous, famous for her writings on vulnerability, and she says this. Says, vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's the courage to show up and be seen when you have no control over the outcome. Vulnerability isn't weakness, 
It's our greatest measure of courage. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers in his book, The Four Loves, he said this. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure to keep it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. If we want to be who God made us to be, if we want to fulfill the one another's that God lays out for us, where he says, hey, if you guys want to live in circles like I designed you to, there's a whole lot of one another's that we got to start to begin to include in our life, including loving one another. If you want to do that, you're going to have to be vulnerable with one another. It's not going to be safe. It might be scary. But that's actually the relationship that he's called us to. It's the relationship the disciples entered into that gave them a platform of strength to walk out the mission that God called them to and to have a lot of fun with each other along the way. And I think that that's what God is calling us to here today. Again, this is why we do life groups. Not just looking to fill up the schedule, not just looking to give people something to do. It's because I want to see these types of relationships fostered in our life. Maybe you've gone to a small group before, and it was weird. Maybe the people were weird. Maybe the leader was weird. Maybe the content was weird. I think everyone's been a part of a weird group before. There's weird people here, so there's going to be weird groups, you know? If you don't think it's weird, you, you might be the source of the weird, you know, just throwing it out there. Um, but I want to encourage you, in this season that we're in, where God is doing powerful things on the earth, we need a church that is together. We need a church that's in it together, a church that has relationships, that has a whole lot of love for one another. So I want to encourage you to jump into a life group. And you know what? Maybe you've been a part of a group before, and it was an okay group. Maybe there wasn't too many weird people there, but there wasn't any vulnerability. There wasn't any real deep relationship fostered. I want to encourage you, maybe you're the one to start off. Maybe you're the one, like that guy in, in, the church, in Juan's uh, church service that raised his hands and said, you know what, I've had a grudge against Carlos for 10 years and you all know it. I'm going to go and I'm going to repent. Maybe you're going to be the one that's going to be vulnerable and it's going to open the door to other people being vulnerable. I want to encourage you guys to find a life group to get plugged into and lean in. Don't just coast through. Lean in because we need each other. We were designed for relationship to, with each other and I'm fully convinced that we are better together. I believe God is calling us out of hiding. I believe there's a bunch of people who are here this morning who have been hiding for a long time. You've been covering up with fig leaves. You've been hiding in the woods. You've been using all kinds of tactics that I, that I talked about to keep people at bay. You want to have a relationship, but you want to keep, it at, keep people at a safe place. I want to encourage you to come out of hiding in this season and jump into relationship with both feet because I believe that in those places, we're going to meet with God. We're going to build relationships with each other, but we're also going to meet with God because when two or three people gather in his name, right there, Jesus promises he's going to be there. And I can promise you that Jesus is going to be in the life groups, and if you want to find him, 
that's a place that I can promise you're going to find him. Amen? Would you bow your heads this morning? God, you are calling us out of hiding. Some of us have been in hiding from you, like Adam and Eve were, acting like somehow we don't know, you don't know about all the stuff in our life. You don't know what's been going on. God wants you to know this morning, he knows your deepest fears. He knows your deepest sins. He knows the stuff that you've been hiding even from the people that are closest to you. And he still fully accepts you today. Even with your hidden sin, even with your failures, even with the places you're falling short, he fully loves you today. He doesn't love some future version of you when you get yourself cleaned up, when you memorize a few more scriptures and do a few more good deeds. He loves you right where you're at today. You're safe to come out of hiding. God, I thank you that you're calling us out, calling us out from the places we've been hiding, keeping people at distance. Lord, we know that that a journey away from community is a journey towards shame. And there's a bunch of people that have been walking around with way too much shame for way too long, and it's been way too heavy, and they're so weighed down. Lord, I ask that as people take a risk, they take a chance, they step out, they join a life group, Lord, I ask that the weight that they've been carrying would be lifted off their shoulders. That we would be able to say to one another, In the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. And we would actually feel forgiven. Lord, I ask you to bless what we're doing in these life groups. Lord, I ask that it would go farther than even what we thought it could. Lord, I ask that deep relationships would be started. Friendships would be started. Lord, I ask that people would have a ton of fun in their life groups. And they would find people that they can, they can count on. People they can depend on. People they trust. People they can confess their sins to. People they can ask help from. People they can encourage when they're, when they're down and struggling. Lord, I ask you to take these life groups and I ask you to do something powerful. Lord, I ask that the revival that's been happening across the world would happen here. It would happen on Sunday mornings. It would happen in people's houses. It would happen on whenever the life groups are meeting. And that these relationships would become a platform for us to walk out the mission that you've called us to walk out, God. Lord, I ask you to bless each one as they go from this place this morning and that they really would begin to love one another. Not just to love one another in a safe, controlled way, but to love one another in a way that's even outside of their control inspired by the Holy Spirit inside of us. In your name I pray, amen. Have a blessed week.